Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. The Alex Murdoch murder trial resumes this morning as experts speculate even if he gets off on the murder charges, Murdoch could still go to prison for financial crimes. This is one thing the jury may say. They may say, look, we're going to let him go. He's going he's to be convicted of financial right. crimes. And he's he's facing, already admitted How much it. is he facing oh, for all the embezzlement? Forever. A long time? <laughs> yeah. Here to react is white-collar criminal defense attorney Randy Zellin. Good morning, Randy. Good morning. Good morning. So cross-examination of him over, right? Friday was the last day. Uh, thankfully for the prosecution, yes, it's over. That's not how it should have gone down. They how would you have done it? Golden opportunity. The most effective cross-examination is a constructive cross-examination. I make you my witness. They had the opportunity to turn Alex Murdoch into a prosecution witness, take every victim of his financial crimes. And you lied. And you lied. And, and Hakeem Pinckney, who was paralyzed, who needed this money, you looked him in the eye, you told him he was getting these millions of dollars that you had gotten for him, and you lied. Your law partners who depended upon their income to feed their families, and you lied. Law enforcement, you knew the importance of telling the truth to law enforcement. You were in law enforcement, and you lied, and you lied, and you lied, and you ended with, you staged your own homicide. So if the jury's wondering, this guy couldn't kill his wife, couldn't blow his own brains, his own son's brains out. This is a man who is capable of staging his own homicide, mm -hmm. knowing that someone was driving to where he was, got out of his car, pointed a gun, and at any moment he could have said, I can't do this. Yeah. And he stood there and allowed someone to shoot him in the head. You know, he might pull at the heartstrings of the jury by saying, oh, Mags and Pawpaw, and he's using all the nicknames, sounding like a loving father. Oh, and I miss them, and I would never have done that. He's a liar. He's lied so much in the past. Can you say to the, are the jurors going to think about that when they go back to make a decision? Are they going to say, how can we trust anything he's saying? And if the prosecution had constantly reminded them that he is a liar. In fact, his lawyer even said it to the judge. Judge, are we on trial here for murder? Or, or are we on trial for fraud? And what, what the prosecution missed was the opportunity. No, we're on trial because this man's a liar. Well, and you develop a theme, and your closing argument for the jury is, as you just said, mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen, he not only defrauded all of his victims, he defrauded you. Mm. Oh, that would have been good. All right, so he can still go to prison for all these financial crimes because he stole money. I mean, some of these charges, he's charged with a dozen, dozens of crimes uh, ranging from tax evasion to theft to insurance fraud. But it's better to go to prison for that. You can get out a lot sooner than you can for murder. A lot sooner. You can also live better 
in jail being a convicted fraudster than a convicted murderer of your wife and your own son whose brains you left on the ground. Well, and he said he wasn't there. And then he admitted on the stand, I did lie to and police. And you lied. And, and I will you say lied. the prosecutor did. That was a winning moment for him when he said, you were at the scene of the crime where your wife lost her life and your son lost his life. And you told us you weren't there, but you were. But it would have been much easier to say, and you lied. And during closing arguments, I would have had a picture up of him with the badge hanging out when he was in the hospital, just to remind the jurors that this is a man who was so arrogant that when it suits him to be pretend law enforcement, He's pretend law enforcement. He is whatever he wants to be to get what he needs in that moment. Thank you so much for coming on with us. It's a fascinating case. I've been glued to it. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst, your go-to true crime, real crime podcast for your fix of expert analysis and insight into cases. On Crime Analyst, I centre the victims and dissect the psychology of the perpetrators and their terrible, self-serving decision-making, which I explore using a wide-angled lens to identify intervention and prevention opportunities. As you know, Crime Analyst is about the forensic deconstruction of cases, correcting faux or misleading narratives about cases, and using my unique female expert lens with storytelling to highlight the red flags to keep yourself and others that you love safe. It's also about how you can advocate for those who have had their voice taken away. So yes, Crime Analyst is more than just a true crime podcast. It's a lifeline. And I've heard from so many of you who've told me that. So please keep your messages coming. And also, please take a minute to vote for Crime Analyst in the British Podcasting Awards. The Listener's Choice vote is now open, and they're recognising originality, creativity, passion and excellence in British podcasting. It takes one minute to select Crime Analyst and vote for me, and I will be hugely appreciative. I am so small compared to other podcasts, but I know together we are mighty. So work your magic, lovely listeners. The link is in the show notes. Okay, let's dive back into the macro timeline because I'm not done yet. In the last episode, I told you that there was a three-line whip probe into Murdoch. The boat crash case where Mark Tinsley was holding Murdoch's feet to the fire. Then there was PMPD, Murdoch's own law firm, questioning him directly about the missing legal fees. And then there was the grand jury. That's a lot. And I really think it's worth underlining that in a case of a double murder of a mother and wife and child, the husband would normally be a person of interest right from the start. The last person to see them alive would also be a person of interest, and the person who made the 911 call, having discovered their bodies, they too would be a person of interest. And lo and behold, in this case, it's the same person, Alec Murdoch. Looking at his position and wealth and seeing the power imbalance between Murdoch and Maggie, the fact that Maggie had all the responsibility in the family and yet no authority or real agency, and then there is a shift in the relationship dynamic and Maggie is no longer playing by the rules would also mean that Murdoch would be under the microscope. And then finding out that Mazel was legally in Maggie's name 
And so too was the Adisto Beach House. Yes, both properties were in Maggie's name, and Murdoch was also trying to get another loan on Edisto, and there were already two loans on the beach house. In fact, according to Fitz News, just under $2.2 million was owed in mortgages on both of the properties, and it appears that the Murdochs weren't paying their mortgages. Murdoch had huge money problems. All of this would be enough regarding motive, but not in this case, apparently, for some. You see, I still hear people say, but I don't understand why Murdoch would do it. And that gives me pause for thought as to why some of you just still cannot believe that he murdered Maggie and Paul. This tells me that the older white gentlemanly image, the lawyer in the suit and the cloak of respectability and credibility, in other words, the patriarchy, are still playing strong in those people's minds. And for me, that's the whole thing about this case, and it's actually aligned with the motive. That image and reputation is exactly what Murdoch prized above everything and everyone else, and he wanted to protect it at all costs, even at the expense of his own son and wife, who I believe he saw as an extension of himself. I believe in Alec Murdoch's mind they were taking a bullet for the team. And never has a phrase been more on point. Team Murdoch, the family name, and that's what they were sacrificed for. But in reality, what it boiled down to was just him. It's about what he, Alec Murdoch, would lose. And his position and standing is what he prized above all else. You see, for me, it explains why the only genuine emotion that I heard Murdoch show on the 911 call was when the call handler asked him if it was a house or a mobile home that he was indignant and angry. How dare she? So many of you reacted to that section of my analysis. You'd heard the 911 call before, but many of you said you didn't pay attention to that part, but you got it as soon as I mentioned it. That was his reaction when his wife and son are lying feet away with their brains blown out. That's the real Alec Murdoch. For me, that was leakage and the biggest tell in that call. And the three major financial probes were about to expose him for who he really was. The mask was slipping and this was his biggest fear. Hence all the lies. Lie after lie after lie to protect himself. And all his fail-safes and contingency plans were falling away. Judge Carmen Mullen had recused herself from the boat crash case, so he no longer had any protection in the case. Mark Tinsley just wouldn't let go. He was holding his feet to the fire and he said that he would sue Maggie and Paul if Murdoch moved his assets into their names. Murdoch's insurance was not going to cover the boat crash case, and so he was financially on the line for the very first time. And he most likely sensed more lawsuits would follow. And that's exactly what happened. On the 7th of July 2021, a petition was filed on Connor Cook's behalf of a conspiracy to cover up what happened in the February 2019 boat crash that killed Mallory Beach. On the 22nd of September, Connor Cook filed a lawsuit against Alec Murdoch claiming he orchestrated a campaign to falsely accuse Connor and that Murdoch should have stopped Paul from having access to the boat because of his alcohol issues. 
And on the 2nd of December, Anthony Cook filed a lawsuit against Murdoch and Parkers for the 2019 boat crash. And in February 2022, Morgan Doughty and Miley Ortman filed lawsuits against Murdoch and the gas station that sold pool alcohol. And it was breaking news on Sunday, the 16th of July, 2023, from Liz Farrell and Mandy Matney that the Mallory Beach family lawsuit has been settled with Parker. And the Connor Cook lawsuit has also been settled, which is great news. What that basically means is that there will be no trial going forward and that there is some accountability. But it should not have taken this long. I'm pleased for Mallory's family and Mark Tinsley and also for Connor Cook. However, the Greenville News reported that whilst insurance carriers for the Parker's defendants sat for mediation negotiations, Murdoch's attorneys were not present, nor were his insurance carriers. So as of recording this on July the 17th, they have not officially settled. The civil attorney for Murdoch, M. Dawes Cook, said, and I quote, We are still amenable to settling. We just haven't worked out the details yet. Hmm. Sounds like more game playing to me. He needs to do the right thing. But that's not Murdoch's forte. He only does what's in his best interest. Or he'll only do it when he has no other option. You'll remember that Murdoch tried to shift the blame onto Connor for the boat crash, despite all the evidence that pointed to Paul. It's such despicable behaviour. Connor will receive $1 million for his injuries, and he and Miley Ortman, another survivor, they just had a baby together. And so I really hope that they can start to heal and enjoy their baby and look forward to their future as a family. I'm getting ahead of myself on the timeline, but I wanted to bring you up to date because this has only just happened and it's huge news. Now, these weren't the only lawsuits filed either, but Murdoch would have known what was coming down the track. Remember, he's very good at anticipating people's behaviour and the emotional temperature of people. That's why it's really an understatement when I say that a lot was at stake, because literally everything was on the line for Murdoch. And you really have to understand his psychology in order to understand the motive. Now, I believe from all that I've assessed to date that Murdoch saw himself as top dog, numero uno, le grand fromage. And more importantly, he was treated as that. No one questioned him or challenged him. What he said went. He was above the law. Well, he was the law. That's how he saw himself. And that's how others viewed him. But in reality, Murdoch was swimming in an ocean of debt and terrible self-serving decisions and a mountain of lies. Murdoch had used up his $400,000 overdraft with the Palmetto State Bank, where his good old boy mate Russell Lafitte was CEO. In fact, his debt was so great and so concerning that in August, one of the members of the board of the bank, Norris Lafitte, who happened to be Russell's cousin, all the board members were Russell's family. Nothing to see here, absolutely not. Well, Norris actually ordered a report on Murdoch's debt. Mandy Matney talked about this in the Murdoch Murder podcast. It's the Live from Charleston episode, and it's well worth a listen. The bank was very aware of Murdoch's bad debt and bad spending, but they kept giving him money. 
Also, Murdoch had borrowed money, lots of money, from his father, his brother, his friends and his colleagues, including John Parker, who was a partner at PMPED. He loaned him $150,000 in March 2021 and another $77,000 in July, and claims in total he loaned Murdoch $477,000. Randy Murdoch also loaned him $90,000. And that's not all. Murdoch had been funneling off money that he'd won for his clients and inflating expenses. And that's putting it mildly. The chain of events were the perfect storm. The boat crash leading to the grand jury investigation into Murdoch's finances and PMPED questioning him about the missing legal fees. And then there was Maggie and Paul's horrific double murder. This had a domino effect, exposing a web of connections that led prosecutors to file more than 80 financial-related charges against Murdoch, alleging he stole about $8.5 million from more than a dozen victims, including the Pinckneys, over many years. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. I haven't mentioned the pink niche yet, have I? Well, we have to go back in time in the timeline 
back to the 22nd of August, 2009. Take a listen to this. When 19-year-old Hakeem Pinckney was severely injured in a car accident, his family thought they'd found the perfect lawyer to handle the case. His name was Alex Murdoch, the same Alex Murdoch who years later would be facing dozens of charges for stealing millions of dollars from former clients and having to explain a botched fake suicide attempt. He was a predator. Alec Murdoch was a predator who did not care about your life circumstances. Justin Bamberg is the new lawyer representing Hakeem Pinckney's family. Bamberg, who is also a South Carolina state representative, says Alex Murdoch allegedly defrauded the Pinckney family out of as much as $1 million. Almost a million dollars is gone and unaccounted for, and no one knows where it's at. The latest turn in the Murdoch saga dates back to August 2009, when a tire on the car Hakeem Pinckney was riding in came apart. The car rolled over in Hampton County, South Carolina, and Hakeem was left a quadriplegic unable to move his arms or legs. Hakeem's mother, who was driving, also suffered grave injuries along with his sister and cousin. So Alex Murdoch sued the tire company on Hakeem's behalf. In the process, Bamberg says Murdoch arranged for this man, Russell Lafitte, to act as Hakeem's conservator or guardian. At the time, Lafitte was president of Palmetto State Bank, and this is where things get complicated. What ends up happening at the end of the day is the trusting, injured, honest person who just believes their lawyer ends up getting duped. The Pinckney case is one of the cases mentioned in the subpoena sent by the state Supreme Court Disciplinary Office to Hampton County, asking for records in cases involving Murdoch and Russell Lafitte. Court documents obtained by CNN show Murdoch settled with the tire company on behalf of Hakeem and his family. Trouble is, according to Bamberg, money that Murdoch should have sent to his clients, Hakeem's family, was instead sent to Palmetto State Bank and deposited into a bank account there. And the money completely vanishes. Even today, we have no idea where that money went. Hakeem passed away in 2011, two years after the accident. Bamberg says this check for more than $309,000 from December 2011 was drawn on the trust account reserved for clients' money from Murdoch's old law firm. The check is made out to Palmetto State Bank instead of Hakeem's family. According to Bamberg, the checks in question were first discovered by Murdoch's former law firm last fall as they began to dig into more recent allegations against Murdoch. They also include this $60,000 check that was paid to Palmetto State Bank. The memo says it was for a conservator fee regarding Hakeem Pinckney. The conservator, according to court records, was Russell Lafitte. And every penny of this money was intended for these people to be able to take care of themselves. It's the same exact pattern and scheme that we saw in the Satterfield case. Gloria Satterfield was Alex Murdoch's housekeeper. And back in 2018, Murdoch schemed to defraud her family of millions of dollars. The housekeeper died after falling down the steps at Murdoch's home. It wasn't until December that Murdoch apologized to Satterfield's children and agreed to a $4.3 million judgment against him, money he'd kept for himself all these years. In total, the Pinckneys were entitled to between $800,000 to $1 million in settlement funds. But the family never received any of it. 
In January 2022, Pamela Pinckney said this to Fitz News, and I quote, To know that you put your trust and your emphasis in someone who says they have your best interest in mind and looks you in your face and tells you and your entire family that they have your best interest, that you got us 100%, and then you go and you steal from us, even though you got paid through legal fees to work the case. Then you turn around and you steal on top of that from the family. And my son is deceased. That really, it tears me apart literally every day. What a heart-wrenching account and what a horrific experience he put Pamela and her family through. And that's not all. Here's Murdoch in an actual ad he made in January 2020, where he's talking about power of video for a tool called Legal Video Expert. Take a listen to this. We deal with so many clients who unfortunately have suffered catastrophic injuries and are unable to go about moving around the way we take for granted. To be able to show a jury those things instead of telling a jury about them, the benefit is unexplainable. There's absolutely no better tool in the courtroom than to capture that in video. I can't tell you how many times we have used your videos in mediations and seen the adjusters and the attorneys on the other side move to tears. There's just absolutely no comparison to what uh, video can do. The best storyteller in the world cannot relay with full effect the way a video can, and I'm sold on it. Whilst Murdoch is talking to camera, he's suited and booted in his office. He's talking, and it's intercut with video footage of Hakeem being fed through a straw, as Murdoch says, I can't tell you how many times we have used your videos in mediation and seen the attorneys on the other side move to tears. This is unbelievable. Firstly, he knows exactly how to exploit and manipulate people. There's clear evidence right here of that. And he's using Hakeem here to win his case. Secondly, the irony is just incredible. Remember, it was video evidence, Paul's video, that played a significant role in placing Murdoch at the scene just minutes before both Maggie and Paul were brutally murdered. So yes, I 100% agree. Video evidence is much more compelling than a storyteller. You literally, as I keep saying, cannot make this up. In April, Murdoch was indicted over defrauding Pamela along with his banker Russell Lafitte and his college buddy and fellow lawyer Corey Fleming. Fleming was also accused of failing to disperse just over $130,000 to Pamela Pinckney and using part of it to pay a debt owed to a private plane company for a charter flight for him, Murdoch, and another lawyer to go to the 2012 College World Series in Omaha, Nebraska. It's really such despicable and disgusting behaviour. Such a callous disregard for others. It shows how important Murdoch viewed his own comfort, travelling in luxury and keeping up this image of wealth and privilege. That was the priority for him not helping Hakeem and Pamela and their family in their time of need. And sadly, they weren't the only ones. Elena and Hannah Plyler, 
were just nine and 12 when their mother Angela and 14-year-old brother Justin were killed in a car wreck in which they were both injured in 2005. Murdoch was hired by their family to look after their finances until they turned 18. More than $1 million in settlements related to the crash were stolen. Take a listen to this. Two sisters who Lafitte served as conservators for, an FBI forensic accountant, and three of Lafitte's personal family members and other bank board members took the stand today. Lafitte served as a conservator for Hannah and Elena Plyler after their mother and brother were killed in a car accident in 2005, and he is accused of taking money out of Hannah's accounts. Sindra Swinson with the FBI reviewed bank accounts and checks from both Murdoch and Russell, testifying that a $90,000 loan was taken out of Plyler's account and deposited into Murdoch's account after he was overdrawn his account by $3,000. Swinson says 14 transfers were made by Russell from Hannah's settlement account to Murdoch while his account was overdrawn. Hannah says that she was never aware that this was happening. Swinson says Russell continued extending loans and money orders from other conservatorship accounts to pay back the initial Plyler loans. Becky Lafitte, Russell's second cousin and bank board member, says firing Russell was one of the hardest decisions that she ever had to make. She followed up by saying that she owed it to her family, the bank, and the bank's loyal customers to make the decision, and she stands by it. The trial continues tomorrow with more witnesses taking the stand. In Charleston, Emily Johnson, Live 5 News. What an absolute abomination of a human being Murdoch is. Just when you think it can't get any worse, he makes it so. Hakeem and Pamela Pinckney and Elena and Hannah Plyler deserved so much better. Literally every time I discover another case, it could be another episode on its own. That's why Mandy Matney's podcast is more than 93 episodes, and I strongly recommend that you listen to it. The in-depth nature of Mandy's coverage, and mine, tells you about Murdoch's horrific and prolific behaviour, treating people abysmally. It also talks to how he viewed people, And by people, I mean his most vulnerable clients who turned to him in their time of need when their world had fallen apart. He was utterly duplicitous. They think he's going to help them and do right by them. He looks them dead in the eyes and convinces them of that. But all the while, he views them for his own opportunity and gain and his plotting and planning and scheming and then taking from them what's rightfully theirs. No matter how terrible the circumstances, no one was off limits to Murdoch. This all talks to his psychology and motive. I believe Murdoch knew the house of cards was about to come tumbling down. He was about to lose all that he valued and prized beyond and above all else. His reputation, his name, his trust, his cloak of credibility, his word being the be-all and end-all his male entitlement and his male privilege. You see, homicide is the ultimate act of control in a situation like this. This was not about him losing control. It was about Murdoch taking control. And that's what I believe Murdoch's behaviour was motivated by. To come out on top at all costs and use some serious poor me syndrome to do so through Maggie and Paul's murders. Murders he framed as a revenge kill for the boat crash. 
and he called it right. Maggie and Paul were confirmed as dead by a gunshot wound in an apparent homicide on June the 8th, and the South Carolina Attorney General's office made a statement that Paul would be dismissed from the boating charges. So that seemingly went away. Well, it did for Paul. On the 10th of June, the hearing in the wrongful death of Mallory Beach's civil suit was originally scheduled for this day, but it was cancelled. So that went away. And on the 25th of June, Randolph Murdoch III died at his home in Hampton County. That also weighed in Alec Murdoch's favour, another bereavement, which would buy him sympathy and time. On the 25th of June, Murdoch and his remaining son Buster announce a $100,000 reward for information about the person or persons responsible for the killings of Maggie and Paul. Now this intrigues me. I believe he did this to make it look like he was pulling out all the stops. But interestingly, there was a deadline. A deadline of September the 31st. Well, firstly, those smart people amongst us will know that the date, September the 31st, doesn't exist. And secondly, who puts a deadline or a cut-off date on an appeal for information to find the killer or killers of your wife and son? Well, I can answer that for you. Absolutely no one. I have never heard of that before. You know, like we only want information about who killed our beloved wife and mother and son and brother, but there's a cut-off date, and we don't want to know anything after that, because we don't really want to know, and we don't have the money, but we want it to look like we're doing the right thing. It's unfathomable that it would happen in any case, and it's yet another huge red flag pointing to Murdoch's involvement. On the 28th of June, SLED announced that they were reopening the investigation into Stephen Smith's death based upon information gathered during the course of the double murder investigation of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. On the 11th of August, there was a big gear shift. Now, I've talked about this already. Murdoch was interviewed for the third time by SLED. The last minute and 26 seconds was a game-changer for Murdoch, whereby it became clear to him that he was the prime suspect. I believe it was in this moment that he realised drastic action was needed, and he would have felt this even more after his good old boy mate, Solicitor Duffy Stone, stepped aside from the double murder investigation, citing new developments in the case. That was followed on the 22nd of August by the life insurance policies on Maggie and Paul allegedly not paying out. Now I say allegedly because there's no evidence as yet that they actually had life insurance policies. On the 27th of August, after Paul's estate goes into probate, Murdoch signs away his right to administer the estate. I told you about this. His other brother, Randy Murdoch, agreed to take it over. So effectively, it's still controlled by Murdoch. On the 4th of September, Chris Wilson from PMPED spoke with Murdoch and he agreed to meet with him. In that meeting, his so-called best friend confronted him about the missing $792,000. The pressure was back on top of Murdoch, and Murdoch knew that this wasn't going away. Later on the 4th of September, Murdoch calls 911 for a second time. Now, in fact, there were three calls placed, the first two by Alec Murdoch and the third by someone who stopped to help him. Take a listen to the first 911 call. Hampton County 911, what is your emergency? On um, Sarkahatchee Road. 
Okay, what's the address on Sarcastia Road? I'm by the church. Uh, what church? Here? What church are you talking about? Uh, I don't know the name of it with the red roof. Okay, what end of Sarcastia Road? Because I don't know what you're talking about. Um, at the Hampton County side. Okay, what's going on? I stopped, I got a flat tire, mm -hmm. and I stopped, and somebody stopped to help me, and when I turned my back, they tried to shoot me. Oh, okay, were you shot? Yes, but okay. I mean, I'm okay. You shot where? Where were you shot at? Huh? Did they actually shoot you, or they tried to shoot you? They shot me, but... Uh Okay, wait, you need EMS? Uh, well, I mean, yes, I, I can't drive. Okay. I'm and I'm bleeding a lot. Where, where part of your body? Uh, I'm not sure, somewhere on my head. Your head? Somewhere on my head. Somebody just stopped for me, ma'am, um, for 911. Okay, still? Hey. Okay, let me speak to him, see if he can tell me exactly where you are. That church? Okay. Red roof. Yeah, hurry, please. Okay, and what's your name? I'm still here. I'm gonna stay on the line with you. What's your name? Alex Murdoch. Alex Murdoch? Yes, ma'am. And you see you were driving, you got a flat tire, and somebody stopped to help you, and they shot you? Well, they pulled over, yes, ma'am, like they were going to help me. Okay, stay on the line with me. We're going to get some. I'm bleeding pretty bad. Okay. Still St. John's Missionary Church. St. John's Missionary Church? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And can you give me a description of the person that shot you or shot at you? Yes, ma'am. I mean, it was a, a, a white fella. Uh, I'd say a white male, a fair amount younger than me, uh, really, really short hair. Um, you have an ambulance coming, ma'am? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Stay on the line. I got them on the way. You think one of y'all can drive me to the hospital? Uh, yes, sir. You want to get the truck, I'm still here, sir. They, they're on the way. Don't hang, don't hang up. Murdoch was asked for a description of the shooter. He didn't expect this question. He said, I mean... At the top of his answer, that's to buy him time. Then he said, a white fella, 
fair amount younger than me, really, really short hair. Do you have an ambulance coming? So he gives this ridiculously vague and generic description that could literally be anyone, and then he changes the subject. He then talks to someone else, and then says to the call handler that they'll drive him to the hospital. In other words, he takes control of the conversation and what's going to happen next. The 911 call is so bizarre, and so is what Murdoch's claiming. A drive-by shooter would have to know he was in that exact location at that exact time, and this wasn't a direct route that he would take to Charleston from his home in Islington. Now if, and that's a very big if in capital letters, if this were the same shooter or shooters who killed Maggie and Paul, it makes zero sense that they would miss the target. A stationary, larger, unfit, older male in broad daylight, yet they successfully kill two younger targets in the dark at a hunting lodge where there were lots of dogs and lots of weapons. But Murdoch's wound was superficial, and it's not even clear if it were a gunshot wound. And the description that he gave would give anyone pause that this was a real person. Take a listen to him in the ambulance. I think I was. 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 I was
You may not have heard all the audio, as the quality's not that great, but when Murdoch was asked what happened, he said this about the shooter. He said, he was a real nice guy, acted like. The sentence construction alone indicates to me that even he doesn't buy what he's selling, and neither do I. I have never, in my entire career, heard someone say that a complete stranger who tried to kill them was a real nice guy. I have never heard someone describe an event or a shooter in this way. The whole thing with a drive-by is that that's what they do, and there's nothing nice about it if they want you dead. This points to deception. Now, as I told you before, Murdoch then proceeded to spend time with an artist doing a composite sketch. Time and resources went into this investigation. Time and resources that were taken away from other investigations. That's on him. And the other thing to note here is that Murdoch was eloquent and articulate at the point of apparently being shot. For me, he doesn't sound like someone coming down from or in a withdrawal state from drugs. Also, a spokesperson for the Murdoch family issued a statement on the Saturday night and said that Murdoch was expected to recover from his gunshot wound and they asked for privacy whilst he recovers. This is extremely bizarre. They don't ask for the public's help to find who the shooter was. No, they don't ask for that. And SLED issued a press release, but they didn't call it a drive-by shooting or call Murdoch a victim. None of this rang true, and I suspect everyone knew it, particularly given the circumstances. According to Mandy Matney, at the hospital, Murdoch was desperately trying to get hold of Curtis Eddie Smith. In fact, he offered hospital staff money to use their phone. He was so desperate. On the 6th of September, Murdoch released a statement through his attorney, Dick Harputlian, saying he was resigning from the law firm and entering rehab. Murdoch's other attorney, Jim Griffin, said his client had an opioid addiction. Hmm, another plot twist. Sounds very strategic to me. Like the powerful, famous man accused of improper and or criminal sexual behaviour, seeking therapy to deal with it. A world-class liar claims he's a drug addict. The old poor me syndrome always kicks in, as sure as night follows day, and it's contagious, this severe and acute onset at the point of accountability. And he could feel it. It was coming, and he was right. On the 7th of September, the law firm said Murdoch resigned after the discovery by PMPED that Alec Murdoch misappropriated funds in violation of PMPED standards and policies. He resigned? Uh, he stole money, misappropriated funds, lied to his partners in the firm, lied to his clients, was the prime suspect in the double murder of his wife and son, and he was allowed to resign. In what parallel universe is that allowed? Oh, I forget. In Randolph Murdoch land. What the hell? On the 8th of September, the South Carolina Supreme Court issued an order suspending Alec Murdoch's license to practice law in the state. 
Finally, some accountability and intervention by the Supreme Court. But that's not the end of the crazy plot twist. On the 13th of September, nine days after the so-called roadside shooting, Jim Griffin and Dick Harpoolian called SLED and said that they were with their client and they wanted to speak about the shooting. Well, you should really hear this interview for yourselves because it is absolutely insane. In fact, it's one of the most bizarre things I've heard in a very long time. And that's saying something. Because this whole case is unbelievable. Just when you think it can't get any more crazy, Murdoch and his team take it to a whole other level. Join me next week when I'll be breaking it down. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.